Hello and welcome to Conversations from the ANF podcast. In this episode, we speak to Fran Hill. She is the author of the novel Cuckoo in the Nest, as well as being a retired teacher and care experience to sell. Fran shares her experience of entering the care system as a 14-year-old in 1976, as well as her reflections on that experience and how that informed her writing of her book. Details of where you can find the book and about Fran are in the show notes. As always, if you've experienced adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please do get in touch through the Facebook page or Twitter, or you can email us at anfpodcast at gmail.com. Well, I'm Fran, Fran Hill, and I'm um, talking to you here from a room in Leamington Spa, Warwickshire, um, where I was born, actually. Um just over 60 years ago now and um I my experience of fostering is is a personal one as in yeah. I was fostered myself um I haven't been a foster carer so my experience is just from that side of the desk but I've written a book called Cuckoo in the Nest which has drawn on some of those experiences that I had as a child and perhaps maybe not so much the experiences, but the feelings and, um, yeah, the feelings that would go with that and that I've tried to put into the book. I I live with my gardener husband. I'm a grandma. Yeah, three grown-up kids, two grandkids. I've been a teacher for 20 years, and this is the first year I haven't done any actual teaching or tutoring. And before that, I worked in the NHS as a medical secretary, so I did a big career change um, and I guess I've just done another one from teacher to author because that seems okay. to be the way it's settling so um I've read the book and I really enjoyed it and it was um uh it was it was I wasn't I wasn't sure what to expect and to be honest we get books sent to the podcast quite a lot and so you sometimes you, you kind of sort of open them with trepidation thinking oh am I going to have to kind of go through this book and say nice polite things um, but <laughs> I have to say I really enjoyed it and for lots of different reasons, which I'll maybe unpack, but one of them, that one of the main ones, was there's a real sense of time and place about it. Um, and it, it's sort of set in the seventies, and I'm a seventies child, so I just mm-hmm. loved it. It was like every the, all of the sort of the even there's lots of you know lots of like domestic stuff going on mm-hmm. in, within the context References of the story to food and things like that. Yeah. yeah, and and I just found it really fascinating because it really evoked a time and a place. Um, and you mentioned that you you know, you, you've drawn on your own experience. It's not your, you know, it's not your story, but it mm. pulls out some sort of truths and like you say, emotions. So can you, do you feel comfortable sharing your own experience of being a foster child in the seventies, I presume? Yeah, sure. Um, um, I was born to a teenage mom and, um, she married my dad probably because in those days in the sixties, you married, if you got pregnant, and you know there were problems if you didn't and um to be honest she was already a very heavy drinker as a as a teenager so i never really knew my mum without drink involved and that meant problems from the start and she had three more children very quickly after she had me so i guess a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, would be familiar with that sort of chaotic household where drink is the thing that's in control. Um, so I remember my 
time with my mum and I, I left my mum permanently when I was 14, went into permanent foster care then. Um, just I remember the time as very emotional and chaotic and dramatic and not very calm sort of household. Um, myself and my sisters went into various temporary foster care arrangements um, here and there. Um, stayed with relatives, that kind of thing. Just kind of bounced from house to house. Yeah. Um, and then in 1976, um, when the book is set, I went to foster parents thinking it was a temporary um, arrangement and my sisters went to other foster parents. And then my mother died within sort of three or four months of me being there. So it kind of changed from a temporary to a permanent foster care situation. So I was with my foster parents for four years. Um, and then I was 18 and I went to London for my first job from Warwickshire, which they were horrified about. <laughs> it's <laughs> that, that just sort of, I just decided, I think, I, I think I'll go to London. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, that didn't work out too well either because I wasn't the sta most stable of people. But um, yeah, that's that's my experience, and and my experience with my foster parents um, is interesting. What I was saying about having being used to a home that was so chaotic and so dramatic. One of the things I've drawn on in the book is that sense of being in somebody else's house and encountering a completely different way of doing things. And I remember saying to my foster parents. You're so boring. <laughs> Why are you so boring? How come everything happens at the same time? What do you mean three meals a day? Um, yeah, and coming home from school and the house would be calm. And I actually found that quite unnerving. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really interesting how you get used to your own, however dysfunctional your own home is. That's your norm. And um, yeah, I think they found that I did really give them hell, to be honest. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> but it, yeah, a teenager coming into a new home. They had, when I went to their household, they were the same age as my mum, my foster parents, which is interesting. So that made them sort of just 30 when I was 14. So they could only just technically have had me legally. Um, and they were really young. They had a two-year-old and a one-year-old. So I came into a house with a with little children. And um I think maybe they thought teenage girl, you know, would be love these little children, but I wasn't in the least interested. I remember the smell of the nappies, you know, in those days, yeah. cloth nappies. And we used to keep them, I say we, they used to keep them in buckets in some kind of sterilizing liquid. I remember that smell. Um, but yeah, I had as I, as I stayed with them, I mean, my school life was chaotic. I had potential. I wasn't doing very well, though. I didn't, when I was with my mum, I hardly went to school. No, I didn't hardly went to school, but I mean, I stayed at home a lot more than I should have done. And that really changed in the first couple of years after going to my foster parents. Things really stabilised. But yeah, that sense of being in somebody else's family, having to get used to the way other people do things. And I think it's... You know, I don't know how much 
focus there is on on that kind of effect the changes that a child has to go through and has to get used to because as a foster home as a foster family you're taking in a foster child and obviously you then also have to change but your your routine is set yeah for the child their routine is just about to be completely upended and I don't know, you know, I don't really have experience of contemporary foster care and the way things are done, but I hope attention is given to that. Well, I mean, I, I am, I mean, I've been a foster carer and um, I work with foster carers as part of my day job. And it, it was really interesting to read because there was a real sense of these, these two sort of cultures colliding mm. and, and, you know, almost like oil and water that the, the protagonist in the story, um, observing this really peculiar, like you say, the routines, the normality, but also the sense of the foster carers just really trying to be something that maybe they couldn't sustain mm. and just the, the mm. dynamics within the family, which the the, the child was sort mm. of getting a measure of. And, and did that sort of reflect your experience of just sort of trying to work out, you know, because if you're coming from, like you say, a chaotic environment where there was sort of probably loose boundaries to an environment that was, rigid and mm. different and expectations on you as a young person mm. and i didn't i didn't realize it at the time but my foster parents made huge allowances where as i grew up and i watched them bring up their own daughter i realized how, how much give they had had to put up with because they had been pretty wise really but I just at 14 I did not see it like that yeah. you know that they had to put limitations they had to say well you uh like you you can have your boy you can have your boyfriend in your room twice a week <laughs> but as in you know visiting for the evening but we're going to bring you cups of tea every five minutes <laughs> you know that that was the deal um and they 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 made allowances for me because they knew what kind of life I'd been living and what I'd been allowed to do, which is basically anything. And um, things like that, they were very wise. They um, they really interacted with school a lot in order to try and stabilise that side of life um, so that I, you know, did do better in my O-levels than I probably would have. Well, I obviously did better than I would have done. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate that, actually, looking back and thinking, they themselves, you know, had to rein back on some of the discipline they'd like to have put in and were a bit more gentle with me. But I just didn't see it like that at the time. I didn't appreciate any of their wisdom. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it reflects a really, you know, if you were 14, it wasn't as though it was a couple of years. And by the time you're 14, there's a level of independence. And it seems like really trying to, you know, retool yourself and readjust such a big adjustment to then start to you know even like you were saying attending school probably their expectation was every day right this is it mm. now every day so that yeah absolutely the first morning I remember because I went to them in August 1976 ready for the new school term and it had kind of been rushed through a little bit and I remember the first morning eating Weetabix and saying to my foster dad oh I think I have a tummy ache and he was like Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I think I don't. I don't think I. I don't think I will be able to go into school. Okay. 
um, yeah, you're going to school. (laughs) (laughs) Just there was no doubt about it. And he wasn't putting up with any of it, but he wasn't cross about it or anything. He just was very matter of fact. And so, you know, I tried from the very beginning to just keep to my old ways. But um, yeah, I think they were pretty wise. But I made Jackie, my protagonist in the book, different from me. I didn't appreciate my education at all. I was a pain for the teachers. I made their lives a misery. In fact, I remember most of my lessons, I remember from through a square window, through looking from the outside of the door into the room, because I was sent out lessons so often. I remember my lessons like that and watching the teacher from outside the door. And I really wanted to make Jackie different. I wanted to make her maybe what I wished I'd been. (laughs) Um, Really loves her education, is a poet, um, loves her English, um, behaves at school, really appreciates what the teachers are trying to do for her. Um, Very, very bright, very intelligent. And what that enabled me to do was kind of set her against the teenager who actually lives in the house, yeah, who belongs to the family, who doesn't really appreciate her education. I wanted to kind of upend that stereotype that every foster child who arrives in a house is going to be difficult because, you know, there's so much. I wanted to just recognise the potential yeah. that maybe doesn't get recognised because the trauma and the dysfunction can c- cover what's really there underneath. And I think Mm. for me, probably was there had it been nurtured. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about the school and and I'm sort of a similar age to you and sort of came through school in the seventies and eighties, early eighties. And even the nature of the school really felt tonally so different to what we have now, where a Mm. system where children are, um, there's, so many more expectations on children constraints and um which is it's got its positive aspect but thinking about then you was a young person in the 70s was there not a a sense that school were they just disinterested did they just have any insight into your life any consideration i i think they did their best to be honest i mean what they were dealing with was you know i just I was in detention all the time and I remember being in front of the sort of headmistress all the time. They they put time into me and when when I went to my foster home they worked with my foster parents but I think probably before that my mum hadn't really been engaged with the school and wasn't you know wasn't really in a place to be engaged. Um so I think the school did work as hard as they could with my foster parents to sort things out and eventually you know I did get my O levels um just didn't do as well as I could have done um but yeah they 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 were they did their best but in those days you know that I don't think they put the pastoral work in maybe that is put in now Mm. um but given the timeline you explained there it sounds like you know the circumstances within your sort of your your home life uh your your mum Mm. That, that that all sort of that didn't just end the day you left home did it so it must have been something that was quite you know present in your life and if your if your mum died three years after you three joined, three months yeah three months then yeah. you're in the midst of all of that you've got mm-hmm. this mm. um young person experience bereavement loss grief mm. all of that mm. complicated stuff so i mean 
talking to you, you you seem very you're very measured and understanding and thoughtful. But I just can't I can't imagine you as a teenage girl. You, mm. That must have been very manifest very differently for you. I think um, I mean it's, it's strange, really, isn't it? Um, certainly, in my teaching career, I was always known as sort of Mrs. Calm. You know, someone who could de-escalate situations in the classroom. I never really got emotional in the classroom. But there's a flip side to that. And I think that probably came from just getting used to not being an emotional person. So I remember, you know, when my mum died, um, I went to my foster parents, yeah, August 76, and she died at Christmas 1976. And I can actually remember saying to people at school, so they were horrified, my friends. I said, you know, Fran, your mum died in the holidays. And I and I remember saying, oh, we didn't really have a relationship. So I, I think I just disassociated from it mm. emotionally. And I think I've carried that with me. But it has good sides and bad sides. You know, you can control a classroom if you don't react initial, um, emotionally yeah. to the children's yeah. emotion. It's really handy skill. But... You know, on a personal level, it's given me some problems, you know, not not really relating to emotion. Mm. Yeah. And I think perhaps lots, yeah, lots of children who've come from chaotic homes, as you're, you'll know yourself, then, you know, you get used to backing off from an emotional situation, not getting involved in it on that level, because there's yeah. too much emotion around. <laughs> Everyone yeah. else is doing all the emotion. You're not needed. Well, children adapt, don't they? They adapt, they they yeah. survive and they, they find a way of getting through and that can manifest in a whole range of ways. So kind of, I mean, it's, the book is, I mean, I really enjoy it. I was sitting, sitting on, the, on my little sunbed on holiday and um, just Sounds really, great. it was fantastic. Thank you. Um, and my wife enjoyed it as well because she's a similar age. Um, and well, and it was just there was a real sense of it, it evoking stuff, but it was drawing out. And then um, I, I, I started to read it on the plane, and the, the first few pages I had to stop because I could feel myself. I could feel myself quite emotional about the the different things that were being described. So it's a really, I mean, it's a fascinating book that it does evoke feelings. It's it if, it's, if that's what you're aiming for, then I think you mm. kind of hit it on mm. the head, which is perfect. Rather than it being a you know a torrid account of a you know, the, a dramatic account of X, Y, and Z. It, it is very evocative. Can I ask you about your life post-18? Because often I think people have this idea that, oh, well, they're adults now. That's that's done. We've moved on to the next chapter. You sort of hinted there that, again, children sort of unmoored from family, then moving into adult life. And we still need family, mm. don't we? So did the foster yeah. care, did you and your foster care sort of maintain a relationship post-18? Yeah. Yeah, and we're still in touch. They live in Wales now, um, but um, we're still in touch. We still talk um, a few times a year, perhaps, and visit maybe once a year or so. So, yeah, they had other foster children after I left. Right. Well, while I was there and after I left as well, so they carried on. <laughs> I obviously, um, it wasn't a completely failed experiment. They went on to do more. <laughs> um so I didn't put them off entirely, but yeah, no, they're they're lovely people. Mm. And I'm sort of I'm probing for more information out of you, really. Um, and so your relationship with your siblings was that 
sort of picked up or was it maintained while you were in foster care? Okay, that, I mean, I think, I think um, we probably could have had more contact. Um, I was the eldest, so I was 14. My sisters were 12 and 10. Um, and we all went to different places, all within Warwickshire. But contact wasn't frequent. Um, and it's taken a long time to actually get back to a close sister relationship because I did move to London at 18. That obviously separated me from them for a, for a, in, a, in a way. And we didn't have, you know, all the social media we've got now. And to keep in touch sort of daily as, as I probably do now with them. Mm. So I guess over the 30 or 40 years, we sort of come around full circle and probably are closer now than we have ever been. But it took a long time to to get that back together. So thinking about your book, what what sort of inspires you to sort of sit down and think, right, I'm going to put this all into a book? What was the what were you aiming for or was it just sort of an itch you had to scratch? Well, um, three years ago, I published um, a memoir of a year in my life as a teacher. And I thought that was going to be a sort of series of funny anecdotes, a bit James Herriot, only in the classroom yeah. type thing. Um, and while I was writing that book, which was, yeah, three years ago, it was published in lockdown. Um, I realised it was a lot deeper than that. I wasn't going to get away with writing a book that was just a series of funny anecdotes because actually writing about myself and my teaching life made me look at what kind of teacher I was, mm. why I was the kind of teacher who didn't accept help from anybody and just ploughed on until I went down the pan, why I was the kind of teacher who could calm a classroom um, and yet felt sort of pretty chaotic inside myself. And so that became a not a serious book. It's a funny book, but it became a lot deeper. And while I was writing that, I included in it a couple of children who were going through foster care experiences. Um, obviously, I didn't name them, but I just drew on some of my experiences and the children yeah. I'd met. And that made me think, hey, you know, why not a whole novel? Why not a whole story of somebody's experience as a foster child? Because I could, you know, I have something to give to that. And um, that sort of brewed, brewed in my mind for a while to do that. And then I was, during lockdown, I was meeting with a writing buddy. So we got together on Zoom once a week and kind of buoyed each other up in our writing. And we kept giving each other prompts, just little prompts. And she said, well, why don't we, next week, why don't we do the colour yellow? Just let's just write about the colour yellow, anything we feel like. And this idea for a scene came to me, which you will have read the first scene in the book, where Jackie gets taken upstairs to her new bedroom by her foster mum. Yeah. And it's been painted bright yellow, sunflower yellow. And that's where I got the colour yellow. And I first wrote the scene in the foster mother's point of view. And I read it and reread it and thought, oh, this does not sound right. So I swapped it and gave Jackie the voice. And there she was, <laughs> all sort of sarky, observant, hurt, you know, destabilised, but funny. And 
I absolutely loved her. And I thought, okay, this whole book is coming out of this kid's head. And that was the way it started. And week by week, as I met with my buddy, we did different prompts like kitchen or picnic. And I just wrote scenes for the novel that fitted those briefs. And I read them to my friend and we sort of chopped and changed them a little bit. And that's how the novel grew, literally week by week, with sort of various different scenes, which I then, of course, had the enormous job of putting in some kind of relevant <laughs> order, coherent order. It, I really enjoyed the process. And, it, yeah, it was only halfway through I was sort of thinking, I, I think this is going to be an actual real novel. Because, as you know, as an author, you, you, you don't know what you're writing into the wind, mm. you know. For a fiction writer, you need to have written a whole book before you can submit it to a publisher. Yeah. Um, you need to, you know, you submit, say, three three chapters or so and a, and a synopsis, and then they might turn around and say, oh, we want to see the whole thing. And if you haven't written the whole thing, you're in trouble. <laughs> so you've actually got to write a whole book and get it good enough to send to a publisher before you even know it will be accepted. So I was so pleased it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it. Oftentimes, people will self-publish, um, you know, their own their mm. experiences and stuff. And obviously, you've not. And so, that, I mean, is that was was it picked up that easily? Did they sort of say, "Yeah, this this fits"? Oh gosh, no, it wasn't easy. I mean, it was a process, probably over nine months or so, sending it to a list of. I I sent it to literary agents and to and to independent publishers. Um, I sent it to about 12, and it came back with rejections. Um, no real reasons. Generally, you know, you just get sort yeah. of standard rejection. And this isn't for us, or we didn't love it enough, which always hurts. <laughs> we we only take the ones we feel passionate about, and unfortunately this wasn't the case with yours. And I just think that you could say that another way, you know. Yeah. Um, and then the second round of 12, that's when Legend Press an editor who commissions for Legend Press came back and said, well, I've read the first three chapters. I really enjoyed it. Can I have the rest? And I had to reread that email about three million times just to check it wasn't a hoax. <laughs> <laughs> and it all went from there. She she loved it. She just loved the voice. Yeah, uh, yeah. Be, well, before we started, we, we were just having a quick chat and uh, just sort of scoping out generally what we we're going to talk about. And one thing that's sort of is, really interested me was that you were were you surprised that it's kind of created a conversation amongst you know a, a conversation on foster care was that because that it doesn't seem like that was your aim or was it no aim? no I don't think it was actually I don't think I was writing it thinking oh this is going to be useful to the fostering and adoption community or to social workers my daughter-in-law is a social worker and she works with the elderly but she said to me oh I'm going to tell all my social worker friends about this because this is such a valuable perspective and I honestly had not thought about it like that. And it's really, I mean, as an English teacher, I should have thought about these things. But the place of fiction and the fact that a fictional perspective, someone's story that isn't actually true, but is true. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, the feelings and, and, and all the issues are true. That that could make uh, a social worker perhaps read it and think, oh, yeah, that's really helpful for dealing with the children I'm dealing with. And I think that's amazing if that's actually, if that does actually happen, I'd be thrilled to bits about that. 
because yeah, I sort I, of think of myself as not, you know, I was worried that I might get interviewed about foster care because I don't have any involvement in foster care myself yeah. as an adult. I only have my child experience. But to think that I could make a contribution to a contemporary debate is brilliant. Well, I, I think the thing that I really took away from it really was it was it was a, like a good a tool for empathy building. And it was, I thought, as, as a prospective foster carer, it would be mm. a great book to read to just have, like, because as you say, you've written it from Jackie's, it's Jackie's voice that yes. narrates that the whole story and is woven, you know, it's central to everything. And that's the voice, uh, you know, the voice of a child, you know, mm. as much as she's 14 and articulate. And, you know, as you say, she's incredibly bright and education focused. She still brings it back to some of those truths about feeling like a cuckoo in the nest, you know, to that's. Yeah. And she's really hurt. She is hurt. I mean, she has, she, you know, there is a little self-harm thing going on with her. And I just really wanted her to have some vulnerabilities, you know, to show those vulnerabilities in a way that, you know, she's kind of brave on the outside, but inside she is, she is really hurting and, and feeling disorientated. Um, And also, seeing the imperfections in another family you know part yeah. of the part of the story really is the fact that this foster family who take her in have their own secrets and i loved the idea that she could be a catalyst for those coming out you know um the fact that the things she observes she observes the way they're dealing with their own teenager and she knows what they're getting wrong um, but she doesn't interfere. She just kind of, I think of her as a, well, it kind of came from that idea of hypervigilance, which is something I've always had, um, that sort of sense of watching for things that might go wrong hmm. um, and always being on the alert for certain things and being quite intuitive in that in that way, you know, being able to sort of sense an atmosphere in the room. Um, and I wanted her to be like that. I wanted her to have this um, hypervigilant kind of thing where she's really always had to be, not always, but she's recently had to be on the watch for her dad and, and, and how he was. Um, and that she takes that into the new home, that watching what other people are doing and making sure that everything's kind of okay hmm. and that she can feel um, safe. Yeah. Which I think no, I mean, is a really interesting concept, and, I, and it articulated that really well in the book. And it was a re- there was a real sense of this this observer because that's what she's always had to do. Um, yeah. And I also I think one of the other aspects I liked was that there was a real sense of compassion in terms of her family. That mm. though though particularly you know I don't want to give it away, um, but her dad um, it was all, there was a, a strong vein of compassion amidst the failings. Um, mm. And so it's sort of presented that I think often the stereotypes of birth parents, of foster carers, of mm. foster mm. children are really binary. And I think that you sort of said, eh, maybe not. Mm. <laughs> I think I wanted to show how it's difficult for a child, a foster child or an adopted child, because the the divided loyalties, you know, mm. she hasn't, she, and I, and I, this happened to me. You're taken out of your home. You know it's the best thing. 
you know that it's going to be best for you to be somewhere else. You know you weren't safe, and yet you love your parent or parents, you know, your birth yeah. family. Yeah, and this obviously is not in every case, but this was my experience. And then it's a case, well, I'm in this new home. Who am I supposed to be loyal to? Um, what about the fact that I know my parent has done me harm and yet I still feel tied to them? Yeah. Am I, am I meant to transfer all that loyalty to this new family who I don't know? <laughs> Um, and, that's all, and that's all internal, which I think was what yeah. the beauty of the story is that it's not sort of played out in a grand scale. It's just this internal no, narrative. you see it, of, you uh, see what it, it's happening. Yeah. There's one thing, I mean, I must mention the dog, that, that there was a temporary foster home that I went to. who I And this is the foster home that I've really based the book on because I really have very, very few memories of it. I just know that I was there for a few months or so. And I know there was a girl there my age or kind of my age. And that that really got me thinking, well, how did she feel about yeah. me arriving? And that's why in the book I have the daughter who's who belongs to the family kind of she was sort of expecting a younger child, not a competitor. Um, but the, this foster family, this temporary foster family had this Dalmatian. And uh, I didn't put this in the book, actually, but he was hilarious. When they they played, uh, they used to watch Coronation Street. And whenever that tune came on, this Dalmatian would come and sit in front of the telly and sing along. It's like, you know, as soon as that, na, 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 na. Um, and the Dalmatian would sing along. And I was thinking, I can't remember much about that placement, but that Dalmatian is going in the book. Um, so he did. And uh, yeah, I ran a little competition around the launch with my um, website subscribers just to see if anyone of them could spot what the name of the dog could, could think what were the name of the dog was going to be, um, which ends up being spotless, which I just thought was a great joke. And um, I say it myself, but yeah, the Dalmatian <laughs> went in. <laughs> Excellent. And um, France, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. And you've been really open and candid about your own experience and, you know, the, you know, which is really, really fantastic and gives an absolute context for the book. Can you tell people where they can buy the book? Um, well, it's available widely online. Um, it's it's hopping about at the top of the uh, charts on Amazon, the sort of adoption and fostering books. Excellent. And it's been top there for a while, which is really, really nice. Um, but online, but any, any bookshops, Waterstones are stocking it, Blackwells and um, all the usual bookshops. So... Um, it shouldn't be difficult to find Cuckoo in the Nest. Yeah, and it's got a brilliant 1970s vibe on the cover, <laughs> which uh, you could, uh, which I hope will stick out to people in in the bookshops. Well, that's fantastic, and we'll put the we'll put a link to it um, in the show notes as well, so people can track it down. And I really, yeah, I think it's it is a great book because it's it's sometimes books about fostering adoption can be a bit like heavy and a bit tech, you know, texty academic books, and this is something totally different. Yeah, um, good. And, I'm and glad of, you think so. Thank you. Yeah, it rips along. It, I can recommend sitting on a beach and reading it um, strongly. You have to bring your own beach, though. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, beach so thank, not included. Beach not included, definitely. <laughs> um, or pina coladas. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And we wish you really, really well with the book. And will there be any more? Um, I've I've already written a sequel. I've just finished the first draft. Wow. Because um, so many people have said... They wanted to hear more about Jackie, so 
I mean, I haven't, it's not under contract. I haven't sold it yet, but um, I've, I've finished the first draft and it's just, I'm letting it fester for a few weeks before I go back <laughs> to it and uh, look at it with a more objective eye and, and get it rewritten. So yeah, more, more of Jackie to come. Excellent. Well, I wish you well and I look forward to reading it if and when it comes out. Thanks so much for talking to me. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> Excellent. Bye-bye. Bye.